What's up, world? It's Amy Ball, and welcome to Skeletons from the Closet, where we dig up the past to help you build a better future. Let's kick that closet door open, shall we? All right, everybody. So we're back. And to anybody listening, I want to know if this has ever happened to you because I was thinking about this morning where you talk to your best friend and you're trying to use her morning routine because she's totally productive every morning. Yet when you do it, you feel drained and and you're not energized at all. Or you do this diet fad that seems miraculous for somebody else and you end up gaining weight on it. And the reason I'm asking all these questions is because I think this happens all the time where we try to copy and paste thing or we do the things that everybody tells us to do. And today's guests, although he probably has no idea what I'm talking about and how I'm going down this wormhole, I think some of the insight that he can lend will actually uncover why certain strategies work wonders for some people and can utterly flop in other situations. So today we are talking to the founder of one of the world's top-ranked Google agencies, Kasim Aslam. He is the force behind solutions. He's hit, scaled seven and eight-figure companies and basically rewritten the rule book, I'd say, for Google Ads. And all that said, what I really like is that while so many people chase instant results and want this right now, His mantra, from what I can see, is built around trust, which is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And for the record, he's also a dedicated father, husband, philanthropist, best-selling author, top 50 digital marketing thought leaders in the United States, just to name a few. I mean, he's, you know, not a big deal or anything, obviously. So, awesome. (laughs) Welcome. Amy, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. No problem. No problem. Hopefully, I didn't get that ego built up too much because your accolade list is probably longer than anybody I can think of or a lot of people. Half of that is just affirmative action. Like somebody called the University of Missouri and they're like, you need to have a half pack on there. And so I got. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations on your parents being from, you know, a different ethnicity. (laughs) Yeah, that's. That's all it took. So, wait, I was going through some of your podcasts, all that good stuff. And obviously, I saw you when you spoke at one of the conferences a few years ago. And I didn't realize you used to be an actor. So, I did. How did that, like, (laughs) I'm like, okay, in one picture, I I see this like Hollywood star, and the other one, I see Google nerd. So, help me understand this. Uh, I just act like a Google nerd. I, it was my sad, pathetic passion and hobby from the time I was a kid I was like 14 or 15 and I started doing like indie films and real low budget stuff I lived in Albuquerque and there was a little film studio there because they had a huge tax break and so you could actually get some work I've been in 80 movies they're all horrible 80 probably more 80 that I can like that actually ended up you know being produced but you it's sad how many times you go out and work and then nothing ever happens And I wanted something I could do from anywhere because when you're on set, the joke is hurry up and wait. Like you're constantly just sitting around, but you need to be mobile and nimble. And, you know, there's always, especially depending on the type of flick you're working on, it's like, hey, the only time we can get the location is tomorrow. You have to be there at two. And there's no job that allows for that. And so I set out uh, with the goal of outsourcing. 
I, at the time, outsourcing was like a really big conversation. Everybody's like, you're still in American jobs. And I'm like, I wonder if I can do that. And <laughs> I, I have a, a cousin in Pakistan who lied through his teeth, by the way. He was like, oh, I can do any work you send. I can, I like, I've got people and friends and staff and whatever. And so I started trying to outsource stuff. Like I, I outsourced, I got a guy who would send me some medical transcription. He was a friend of my dad's and, and he was paying a transcription service, some amount of whatever. And I was like, oh, I can outsource that. And so I was like, in software development and web design and just anything that anybody would out because the idea was, oh, I don't have to work. Like I drum up a little bit of business. I send it off to, you know, my Brown brethren, they figure out the assembly line and then they deliver it. And then the whole time I get to be an actor. Um, and most of it failed most of the time. Like it was just, cause I was also lying through my teeth, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I could do transcription and you know, I don't, I can't spell transcription. And you know, it would <laughs> ended up coming up bad and, but I strung together enough, just, I mean, the absolute dregs of the ends meeting to, to act. And that's all I wanted to do. And then as you get older, you know, first of all, there's not many roles for nine foot tall Pakistanis. They don't tell our story often. And then, you know, I met my wife and I got married and then money became the, just the goal. Like, it's like, oh, I need this. And, and by that time I'd built up this nice little business and it worked and it functioned and it was, you know, and then, so the acting kind of phased out and I started with software development, which is where I actually got some traction because you just get these great big projects and software. When the banking collapse happened, I lost my world. Like my house was foreclosed on, my car was repossessed. Mm -hmm. I'd lay off everybody that worked for me and I couldn't do software builds anymore because they're very backloaded financially speaking. If you do a, a software I was doing software builds for banks. So you get like 5% up front and then mm. you'd float the rest through like an SBA loan or, you know, if, you, if your parents have money, go get it from them or whoever. And then you'd get the nice pop on the back end, which is great until the bank goes under and you're not going to get paid. Mm. And so I, I couldn't do software. So software became web and building websites is horrible. I hated it, but I made some money at it. And then web became SEO and SEO became marketing and marketing became Google ads. So I did not set out to be a Google ads manager. Fun fact which is an open air conspiracy. I've never hidden this, but I've never run a Google ads campaign in my life ever. Have I run an end to end Google ad campaign, but I'm the world authority in Google ads, right? Like it's just, it's an interesting world we live in where you can establish yourself as an authority. And all I do, I, I try to think I do it with integrity because I have access to more data than anybody else has access. I have a hundred employees. I have 200 clients I have a hundred million dollars in ad spend and I get to see what nobody else gets to see. So I'm like, Hey, here's what we learned. And I just go talk to the smart people and I distill the information. And I actually think I'm in a better position to do that because if you actually know Google Ads, you make so many assumptions when you're trying to explain it to other people. I don't know shit. So mm -hmm. I have to go learn it from the ground up, but then I get to explain it from the ground up. And so I get to be, I get to bridge the gap because I'm a dummy. But so, which means you have to explain it to me like I'm a dummy. And that's uh, more or less the Genesis story. I don't know how I did that. I'm sure that was, you can cut out as much of that as you want. No, that was awesome because I think it's so interesting just how you said that because you know, you see all the time online, especially within that marketing world where it's like, oh, I don't know how people can sell this if they've never done it and they're the authority on it and all these things. But you make a really good point is that it's so easy when you're doing it every day to really get down in the weeds and put on blinders mm -hmm. and not see what the bigger picture is. So for somebody to understand the data and be able to take that and then put it in layman's terms so that way your customers and your clients can understand Okay, I get that. That makes sense to me. And so that goes back to 
what I was saying earlier about trust. One of the things that I heard you say, which intrigued me was that while everybody else is looking at all these vanity metrics when it comes to digital marketing and people aren't familiar with that term, it's just typical ratios that they'll look at to figure out how much spending a business should be doing and things like that. But you're saying that all the things that a lot of marketers do, which is run people to landing pages and try to get leads in the door and everything else, that it doesn't work, that there's another secret to it. Yeah, it's, I hate to slander our collective environment, but it's a freaking plague. Like most people, most of the, well, do I want to say those words? I actually, I believe generally speaking, most people are going to be honest most of the time and, and have good intentions and have, you know, try to do the right thing. I really do believe it. that might be naive. I hope not. But when I look at the marketing world, I see it and sometimes really good folks selling the wrong damn thing. And it's not to anybody's advantage. You can't eat likes, comments, or shares. You can't eat ROAS or TCPA either, you know? And, and so I think what people fail to do, and this is shocking because this is like, I mean, we all learn this in Sunday school. What is it that your customer really needs? Not wants. You not once you sell them what they want. You give them what they need. What is it your customer really needs? And then go fulfill on that. And it's actually harder to do in the beginning because you're, you know, kind of going against the grain. But when you do that, your story is so much more integrous, mm-hmm. you know, because if somebody comes to you, even if they're like, oh, I want likes, comments and shares. I don't take those clients. I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help you. You're going to fire me later and you're going to be pissed. What you really want is ROI. That's what all of us want. And here's how we calculate that, by the way. And then what's interesting about that is if you put yourself in a position where you have to deliver on real value, so instead of trying to convince somebody that what you're delivering on is valuable, instead, find the thing that's valuable, deliver on that. Now you're going to start interviewing your customer. And this was the thing that really changed the game for me is because in the beginning, when you first start out in business and we're all like this, you're basically like, please work with me. I'll do anything. (laughs) And, you know, and that's kind of a prerequisite. It's almost the first hurdle you have to jump just because you're learning, you know, who you are, what it is that this, this construct called commerce really is, you know, the give and the take and managing expectations and all those things. But at a certain point, you decide like, all right. I actually want this to work. I don't want people to yell at me anymore. I don't want to have a knot in my stomach. I want to fulfill on something that's real. And the minute you make that decision, it's no longer please work with me. It's, are we the right fit for each other? Do you answer your phone? Can you close? Are you priced in a realm that would actually allow you to deliver on the services I'm going to be marketing for? Like, And this isn't just marketing, by the way. This could be anything. You want me to build software? Let's talk about your expectation management and what we're going to integrate with. You want me to mow your lawn? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. Whatever somebody wants you to do, if they're going to give you money, it's not, please, it's, wait, let's for a moment, make sure that you and I are aligned from an expectation perspective, a deliverable perspective, an operations perspective, a timeline perspective. And when you do that, people go, oh my gosh. And I can't tell you how often I hear like, you are so honest. I'm just, it's such a breath of fresh air. And I'm like, man, all I do is just, you know, here's everything that could possibly go wrong. And then check, check. And now I, I don't have a single bad review. I've been in business for almost 20 years. And it's actually, there's one guy who watched a YouTube video and said, they sound expensive, but not, I don't have a real client review because it's like, I'm like, hey, here's everything that can go wrong. And if I scare you off, let's not do this together. And that happens. That's the other thing that people, it sounds like a really good soapbox, but you lose business. Mm-hmm. Like there are people who, I was just on a call with a guy. He's got a million dollar a month spend. 
And he was very insistent on some non-negotiables for me. The first and most important being compliance. He's in a he's in an industry that Google doesn't like. And I'm like, dude, Google's going to shut your campaigns down regularly. And my job is no longer to run your ads. It's to go manage the compliance department. And when I'm doing that, by the way, I'm still cashing your check. So you're paying me not to run ads. And then he kind of wiggled around. He goes, oh, well, well, we'll see when we get there. And I'm like, no, we won't. That's the rule. That's the agreement I needed in writing. And then I couldn't get him to bridge the gap. And I'm a little kinder on the call than I am in this particular <laughs> instance. But that was, I could see right out of the gate. No, we're not going to align here. And so it's not like, you know, I don't espouse all of this from like a moral virtue perspective. I'm not trying to be woke or virtue signaling. Telling the truth and making sure that we agree on what the truth is. It's the smartest financial and business decision you'll ever make. And it's the most profitable I've ever been is when I became obsessive over the truth. The three core values that are business and what I teach my children. It's truth, responsibility, and love in that order. And people get really turned off by that because everybody thinks the greatest of love. And I don't think that's true because love without truth is blind and love without responsibility is impotent. You need truth first, responsibility second, love third. That's not to say love is the least important. It's to say that truth is the most, it's the first of equals. It needs to be like truth is turning the light on. Until the light's on, we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. That felt soapboxy, even though I tried not to make it. Sorry, Amy. No, you're like feeding exactly into... To our beliefs. And I think that parallels very well. I know that you're philosophical. I know that you are an avid reader. And what you're saying, just not only to tell the truth, but to agree on the truth, because mm. people have different versions of truth, right? And it's all you have to put that forward and speak it and agree that this is going to be our aligned truth together, not only in business, but I think in relationships. And we were talking about earlier before we started about getting in like-minded circles and around the right people. If you're planning on getting married or you're getting into a business partnership or anything else, I mean, you both have your versions of the truth. Right. But if you're not in agreement on it, then shit's going to go crazy real quick. Yeah. And then whose fault is it? Well, that's a funny question too. I had one of my very first business partners. She's not a bad person. I, I really loved her. She was a integrous human. She... Uh, was a very strong personality. And there were things that she did that I didn't like and I never said anything. It's my fault. Like she's going to be a bulldozer for as long as I say, hey, I don't want to be bulldozed. And because I didn't say that, even though I felt like I could tell you like, oh, here's what she did and here's what I did. And, and in a weird world where actions are on a chalkboard, you could be like, oh, she's wrong and you're right. But I never said anything. I was, it was some mixture of cowardice and apathy and reticence and I, you know i was just young too it was early i didn't know how to i didn't know i could stand up for myself like it was just a weird i hadn't learned that yet and so i the partnership ended poorly and it was my fault like i needed to stop and say like hey i this is a non-negotiable for me or these are my boundaries or this these are my issues and because i didn't say that and because she didn't know you know i can tell you right now like oh i don't think she would have responded well to them but that's irrelevant it's irrelevant. So, you know, I really, I owe her an apology is what it is because the truth is it's a really difficult thing to champion in environments like that. You know, like to have to, especially when you're willing to take it on the chin. And this is something I've learned over, you know, I'm almost 40 now and it's, I'm still horrible at this, but I will negate the truth when I think, okay, the truth is to my advantage and I don't mind losing that advantage. I'll just take it. It's fine. I can absorb the loss. I can absorb the whatever. But then I get resentful. Mm -hmm. And even if I think I'm not going to, I do. And I've lost partnerships. I've lost friendships. And so even when the truth is like massively inconvenient, 
or feels like such a small thing compared to what we're dealing with. I just think you need to, it needs to be honored. Jordan Peterson says this thing that I love. He says that if you tell the truth, whatever happens afterwards is the optimal outcome. Mm-hmm. And that's a fun thought exercise, you know, because there's some things where if you tell the truth, the thing that happens is horrible. It's like, man, this is not enjoyable at all. But then you think to yourself, well, if that's the optimal outcome, why and how? And if you're willing to commit to that and believe it, you know, um, sometimes you have to get a little meta with it. It's like, well, maybe that won't be the optimal outcome for me, but maybe it will be the optimal outcome for my children or my heirs or my society or my culture. But yeah, there's just something about it. And, and the interesting thing too, is we all return to it. You know, there's always this pendulum swing back to the truth, which has been a, a philosophical truism for as long as we've had written record, you see, this is where all theology, all philosophy starts and then it kind of branches out and people get real creative with the way that they explain things. And then it gets stretched too far and then boom, it collapses. And it's actually dangerous when it collapses because when it collapses, you get too literal because the truth doesn't need to be so literal that we beat each other with it. You know, like there are sophisticated versions of the truth, you know, like it's the, it do, does this dress make me look fat mm-hmm. question? Like we don't need to get to the point to where the answer is yes, but that's where we collapse onto ourselves with so i don't know it's a fun discussion and it's it's nobody's ever right and objective truth is such a difficult thing to chase especially when you start talking about really complex issues i agree with that especially religion right i was a creole catholic and growing up like you said some some you say a creole catholic well one of those two cradle catholic what does that mean (laughs) so born and bred born and okay i was a cradle baptist then i didn't know that was a term it is now. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is though, like you said, some of this people take it so literally and they grasp onto it and it's, you're wrong. This is how it happened versus could this actually be, let's ponder it, metaphorical right. for an event that happened to give you this lesson, right? right? And truth is the same way. And I love that quote that you said about as long as you tell the truth and I'm paraphrasing here, you're going to achieve the optimal outcome. I think there's a, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I think we almost have to take a step back out of our ego or into the good side of the ego and say, you know what? I can't control this outcome. Mm. And if I know that I can't control it and the outcome is the outcome. And like you said, it's optimal for either side. I mean, sometimes we get outcomes that we don't expect. Have you ever had those instances where you're like, oh my God, I'm going to admit this and I'm going to lose the job or I'm going to do this. And and they're like, wow, I really appreciate that. I, I have a fun story. I had, it was one of the biggest opportunities I've ever had professionally. I was working with a, a SaaS company in line to get equity. They were aiming at a big exit. It was a large, it was significantly sized chance. I'm supposed to visit them in Denmark. And I screwed up my passport. I didn't realize my passport was going to expire while I was there. And so I thought it wasn't a problem or maybe that story is a little bit, I'm getting this wrong. I I think maybe my passport is six months from expiring, but there's some countries that don't let you, whatever. It doesn't matter. Short version is I didn't, I wasn't responsible. I didn't do the thing that I was supposed to do. And I'm, I go to catch a flight and they're not going to let me on the plane. Can't go to Denmark. And I was talking to my dad and I'm like, man, I'm just going to tell him what happened. And he goes, don't do that. He's like, tell him that like something, you know, what it makes some shit up. Like, this is the perfect, you missed the flight. It's, you know, whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to tell him. 
And so hop on and on a call and he was pissed, like upset. He'd built the whole trip had been scheduled around me being there. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. I screwed up my passport. Like it's my fault. I made a mistake. And he was mad, but he was also really like, I appreciate you telling me that. Because he knew most people would have just lied. And the thing about lies like that is I know you're lying. You know you're lying. You know I know you're lying. But nobody can say, dude, you weren't in a car accident. Like, stop. What are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, man, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. I screwed this up. And I ended up earning his trust to a degree that I never could have had the opportunity to do in a normal because he just knew he's like all right Cosm's not gonna Cosm's not gonna bullshit me and it was the best way he ended up being one of my closest friends for a long time he got me into war room which is the reason that i'm co-founder driven the thing that we were aiming at didn't happen but that's okay like it was just this it was this moment in time where i should have lied technically speaking like the odds said hey dude you should not screw this opportunity up and it was great it was a great lesson and my dad still brings that up sometimes. He still talks about that, you know, and, and kind of with some reverence, which is unusual for my father, especially when talking about anything that I do. So it was a good lesson to learn. Well, isn't that funny? Because that's where it comes right back to what you said your three core values are. And you told the truth, you took responsibility. And then you grew this relationship that was seemingly more trustworthy, more loving, more authentic. And I think that's when we don't take responsibility, when we don't own our own bullshit, when we tell the lies, they eventually come back to haunt us. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening every time is you lie yourself into situations that you eventually don't want to be part of. And then you resent everybody around you, just like you were saying. So I think that's a testament to sometimes it can take a day, sometimes a year, sometimes a lifetime, but it always comes back around. Yeah. And sometimes you'll never know. I wonder about that too. I was a pathological liar from the age of seven to like 22. And I didn't stop lying because I, I had any you know, moral awakening. I stopped lying because I got fatigued because my whole life was like, this person can't meet that group of people. And this person can't meet this person unless this person's there. But not, you know what I mean? And then you're like, and then you have to remember all this weird shit that you said. And I mean, there's a reason that we call it like a web of lies. Like it's just, it all intersects and it overlaps. And, and I wonder constantly like what that cost me there's something to this gets so obnoxious but maybe it doesn't maybe there's a reason i'm afraid to talk about this there's a fracturing you know they say uh i wish i could remember who to i think it was um he's a jesuit priest from the 1600s he wrote all the books on love um doesn't matter i think it was him that said you never break a principle you only break yourself against the principle so when you can't break the truth, you, period, like you cannot, it is. So when you lie, you're breaking yourself against the bedrock that is truth. And it feels that way. Every lie you tell is a little fracture in your soul. It's this little teeny tiny, some of them really aren't that big. Some of them truly you can survive, you know? Hey man, sorry, I'm five minutes late. I, you know, traffic was horrible. All right, you're not going to hell. The world's going to move on. But enough of those you know what I mean? Like enough of those. And each one you tell makes the next one easier. And then there's, you'll find things that are just irreparable. You find that, and especially with online now, I find that a lot of people post stuff. I mean, we're living in this time where it's like you said earlier, how many likes can I get? How many interactions are the norm? And 
you see these people that you know are blatantly lying, not only in their real life, but on their posts. I mean, they're keyboard warriors. Nobody's there with you. You have no reason to lie. So on top of that, talking about these little fractures, what do you think over time this amounts to that person that just becomes disingenuine and not real? And not only the impact that you're having on the people around you that are believing these tales, but also what you're doing to yourself internally. I think we're seeing a lot of the after, you know, it's been long enough with social media now for us to be able to see the cyclical nature of the personalities that are developed from a digital perspective. And we're seeing the disintegration of the psyche for some people. And, you know, the reverse happens too. The other thing that happens is there are people whose integrity and authenticity scales. Jocko Willink's a good non-incendiary example. Like here's a dude with a phenomenal message who I assume, believe, tells the truth. And the things that he shares scale beyond what could have been possible pre-digital age. And he's able to influence more people, help more people. The world is a better place because of this guy. There's mm-hmm. other people like that. You know, I feel that way about Ellen DeGeneres. Really like her. And knows again, I'm trying not to, because everybody's politically charged and, you know, depending on where you sit, either of those names might have pissed you off. But there's just, you know, everything that she says feels heartfelt. And so I'm like, I feel like, the, again, her input and, and, and what she's done is scaled. And so the reverse can be true as well. There are people who just put vitriol out. Or even if it's not vitriol, it's not exactly right. Or it's, if man, if I just move this here, that would be really convenient for the point that I'm trying to make. You know, if I could just, if this could be true, this is true, but if this could be true, or, or I'm just going to ignore that. So, and that always happens with online debates. I think those are the funniest things in the whole wide world. I mean, there are people that have been convinced the world is flat, you know, just as a, if we needed an example of what indoctrination can do and what we shouldn't do, the wrong thing to do is to point at those people and be like, look how stupid they are. Uh-huh. The right thing to do is to acknowledge our own propensity for indoctrination, because there is a topic equally as absurd that you've fallen prey to and I've fallen prey to. And we don't know what they are. We're in our own echo chamber. There's no way for us to know. It's by literal definition, it's impossible. So somebody believes the world is flat. Oh, what an idiot. Well, Kasim believes, insert absurd thing here. And on an anthropological scale, 150 years from now, you're like, can you believe, you know, the Romans were piping their water through lead pipes, dummies. They didn't know. What are we doing now that's that absurd? And to just, you know, it sounds like an abdication of responsibility. I don't believe that it is, but there's so much that there's so many forces and so many powerful pressures being placed on us that push us in ways and, and, the first step is being aware of them, acknowledging them. And I and the problem is, to go back to your original question, um, it's the digital world that amplifies and scales those pressures. Like the whole vaccine argument was amazing. My aunt told my mom she couldn't be in her life anymore because they disagreed on that. And I don't care what side you're on. And I really mean that, by the way, because I've waffled enough in my own reading but it's amazing to see how convinced each is of the other's lunacy. And because there's enough literature on both ends to where you're like, man, I really don't know. And that's probably an easily accessible example. There are ex- examples that I wouldn't even bring up because you get canceled. 
but <laughs> well, it's a great case of cognitive dissonance and how we yeah cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, selective exposure. Like people are just and you're always going to reinforce your own. You know that's a statistical truism too. If you and I debate anything, you walk away more ingrained. I walk away more ingrained. Nobody changes their mind. Not in that framework. I think we can grow and change our minds in other frameworks, but that's not the one. And and that's what makes lying so pernicious because we're already going to have a hard time seeing eye to eye. And the minute you disturb the fabric upon which we stand, it makes alignment impossible because mm-hmm. there's the thing that I'm aligning to doesn't exist. Yep. It's so interesting you say it like that because I say all the time when I first started, I was in digital marketing and to me, the industry got slimy. I had those conversations like you were talking about earlier. I didn't want to have to come in and convince somebody that I'm better than the guy who just screwed him over. I didn't want to do it anymore. Like the whole industry had to change. And so I personally in my little hole down in Louisiana was like, how do I make this better? Like how, what needs to happen? What is the missing link? And when I looked at everything, what I came back with was it was trust. Like Hmm. these business owners don't trust their vendors they're partnering with. The customers don't trust the businesses. The business owners don't trust in their own decisions because they're not even looking at their numbers. So how do you facilitate this foundational necessity so that way people can be more successful. So that way they can grow. So that way they can achieve their goals and all this other stuff. So from a truth-seeking perspective, you're running seven and eight-figure companies. You're getting these huge exits from them. You're employing tons of people. How did you see this breakdown at a business level that can also be related to a personal level when it comes to, like you said, being more open and being more aware and recognizing some of these things that we're prone to? My young man that works for me and is probably become one of my best friends he wrote me a text message that i swear almost brought me to tears because i'm dramatic and i cry all the time i cry during tampon commercials i'm horrible um i'm trying to find it i'll paraphrase because i don't want to waste your time we were dealing with an entity and i need to veil this a little bit because i i would breach an nda otherwise but and we were dealing with an organization that we were being forced to deal with because of the, the construct of the, the current agreement. And they weren't, A, upholding what we felt was their end of the bargain, B, really working to try to fix anything. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, man, I'm really sorry you're going through this. I was trying to help him navigate it because it had a lot to do with him specifically. And he was exacerbated. He's actually really frustrated. He wrote me back. He goes, I don't understand. We always tried to make things right. And he, when he was referring to, we, I just sold my company. And so that past company, his perspective of the way that we operated was we always, we screwed up. Amy, I can't even begin to tell you how many times, like epic dumpster fire failures to degrees that were just admirable in their stupidity. But it was always like, all right, let's go tell the customer, tell the vendor, tell, this is what we did. We're so sorry. How do we make it right? And sometimes people would, you know, But it always, that was just the thing. And it was great because I knew that's how I wanted to operate, but I never had anybody else articulate it for me back at me. And it was nice to know that one of the most important key members of my staff felt that way. Like we always try to make everything right. Really touched me. And, you know, I look at my glass door reviews or I look at internal messages from my team and I feel like with some 
you know, exceptions along the periphery because I've had, I have a hundred active employees and it's hard, you know, you, you have to take the average, right? I think that commitment and acknowledgement of the importance of truth has permeated in a way that is, it takes on a life of its own, you know, like it no longer is reliant on any one person. In the very beginning, it's you constantly cranking the wheel. You're like, all right, we're, you know, we're going to tell the truth. And in the beginning, people don't believe you, but then some things happen. We had a $50,000 overspend on an account that we could have a just not brought up b pinned on the client in a lot of ways it was their fault but really the responsibility was ours and so you know i remember getting on the phone with the lady who was the point of contact for the client and i could hear the change in her voice she got on the phone thinking i'm gonna have to talk to this jackass who's gonna negate everything try to hang this on my neck and i'm screwed and have to go explain to my bosses why this happened and I just apologize. I'm so sorry that this happened. This is our fault entirely. I take full responsibility. We'll do everything we can to fix it. And it was just this moment where she was like, are you a fucking idiot? Are you, you know what I mean? <laughs> so she was, and she just got, all of a sudden it was just paved road. She's like, thank you. Great. You know, and she was still mad. How could you not be? I just spent 50 grand I shouldn't have spent. And then I filed it. By the way, shout out to Hiscox Business Insurance. It was the easiest process I've ever been through. And I, you know, had business insurance with them for as long as I had. And I was like, hey, we accidentally spent 50 grand we shouldn't have spent. And they're like, all right, send us documentation. And I did. And they paid 80% of it. Oh, wow. Sent me a check. It was unreal. But it was cool for all my employees to see that. And then, you know, the, there were two employees in particular whose fault it really was because I'm not running these accounts. And both of them thought they were getting fired. And I just hopped on. And I was like, I'll bet you'll never do that again. And, <laughs> but, you know, can you imagine the culture now? You know what I mean? Like everybody knows, all right, boss has my back. We're not going to lie to people. We're going to, because you hate, I hate that. I hate, because I've been on in, yeah, we've all been in those environments where it's like, man, I'm on the boat, but I'm not the captain. And the captain is full of shit, mm -hmm. but I'm still helping him row. So now I'm full of shit. So there's just something about the way that it permeates. And, and then now, because, you know, you've gotten the momentum up now, that's just the way people act. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I really appreciate that question because I don't know that I've thought about it much, to be honest with you, but it really does feel like it, it sort of becomes a, like a daemon, you know, like it, it's a, it's a, its own force with its own agency. But isn't it cool? Just like you're saying, and not only from the business side, but personally speaking as well, where you get in those moments and like you said, you can take the easy way out or you can shirk responsibility or whatever it is. But when you do it, it and other people see you doing it. I know for me, not only in business, but I always know my kids are watching. Mm -hmm. They're 21 and 18 and we all do stupid things as kids and we even make mistakes as adults. But you try to do the best you can with what you know and, and to raise these kids. And if they see me doing shady shit, if they see me making decisions that don't benefit other human people, other human beings just... So that I don't get the short end of the stick. And guess what? Yeah. They're going to do that too. And one of the things I always tell them, and I tell everybody I work with as well, I am wide open. I am not going to lie to you. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, but I need you to be fully transparent with me. If you think I'm doing a shitty job, let's talk about it. And I think when you do that with your employees or your kids or whoever else, when they see you doing it, they know it's safe. For them to do it with you. Mm, and I think it becomes contagious. Yeah. I really love that, Amy. I appreciate that.
it's difficult because the truth cuts both ways. Like I can tell the truth about what I'm doing wrong, but I also need to tell the truth about what you're doing wrong. And that goes back to that resentment issue. Like if you don't do that, you are going to pay the price. That's still a lie. It's a lie by omission. Mm -hmm. I'm in business with a gentleman named Perry Belcher, who's probably the godfather of the digital marketing world. Like he's yeah. one of the most successful people I've ever known. In, in strictly in terms of skating to where the puck is going. I've never seen a human guess right so often, so consistently. It, it blows me away. It actually really frustrates me sometimes. And uh, me and Perry had been in business not long. And I got a phone call from him and he goes, hey, dude, just want to let you know I'm a little upset. I'm like, you know, tell me more. And he's like, I heard this. And then he told me what he heard. And I was like, oh, bro, you heard wrong. It's this. And he goes, all right, cool. Appreciate that. See you. And it was an uncomfortable conversation for about 120 seconds. But I know now forever that I'm, I'm me and Perry are good. And if we're not, he's going to call me like, hey, dude, this is I heard this. And what a blessing that is, because I've been in the other partnerships, too, where I'm like, what's wrong? Are you sure? I'm gone. You know, oh, you know, shoot me in the face. And maybe more regrettably, I've been that partner. Uh -huh. you know and where you stonewall you just like i'm just yeah is i'm just pouting be mad unless until you can read my mind right and figure out what the fuck is wrong <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly right so the truth cuts both ways and telling the truth is as a method of self-advocacy is something i still struggle with you know you mentioned your kids watching you i worry about that with my kids if i go to a restaurant and i order something and i get the wrong dish that's what i'm eating now you know, like I'm just, I just, I, it's a hard, I don't know why I'm sure it still stems from horrible self-esteem issues, but I don't want my boys to be that way. I want my boys to be like, you know, respectful. Oh, ma'am, sir, this isn't what I wanted. And so that's a muscle I need to learn to flex because I want them to be able to stand up for themselves and, you know, take up space. And that's a big piece of it too, that some, for some of us is harder than others. And to do so respectfully, right? Because you right. Can, those ones where they're flinging plates across the thing and yelling at yeah, those there's plate. something like yeah, there's that's not about the food for those people. No, it's not. It's yeah. not. What's so funny though, you said about Perry and how you feel like he can see stuff before it's even coming. What do you see for the future? Obviously, everybody's on the chat GPT wagon. They're talking about AI. It's going to take over the world. It's going to shut down businesses. Again, you can go into the conspiracy theories real deep, but I'm a big systems thinker. So I'm always reverse engineering stuff and trying to figure out the path of least resistance. And I tend to have a different take than a lot of these, I guess, negativity bias type individuals. What's your fuel on or your take on where AI is going to go, how it's going to impact the digital businesses and even human beings in general uh, i'm a card carrying prepper i've got <laughs> fifty thousand rounds of 762 by 39 i've got a device that'll let me drink my pool water if i need it i have potassium iodide a year's worth of food <laughs> my wife and i are looking for land in the northeast or midwest for homesteading uh, i have had very deep concerns about something like a infrastructure or economic collapse for about 20 years and in my defense, I'm not a zombie apocalypse or religious prepper. Like, God bless those people, but I'm just not one of them. Every real software engineer I've ever known is also a prepper. Anybody yeah. who spends any amount of time under, you mentioned being a systems thinker. If you look at the systems that are necessary to keep, go, if you have a chance, go read the Peter Zihan's The End of the World is Just the Beginning. 
he goes a little far, but it's a brilliant explanation of just the supply chain behind this cup of coffee is a miracle. It's a multi-trillion dollar complex web of intricate cooperation among thousands of entities, hundreds of organizations, dozens of governments. You know what I mean? Like it's, and we saw what happened with something is, and I'm going to say as small as, because if you think about it, COVID was actually on an anthropological scale, small, like that's one infrastructure collapse brings us to a screeching halt Two blood in the streets. And that's a fact. So I've been a card carrying prepper for 20 years which you know, I know makes me batshit insane for a bunch of people. But I think if, here's the thing. If you have any form of insurance, car insurance, life insurance, health insurance, you're a prepper. Yeah. Now the question becomes, how prepared do you want to be and for what? Because I, again, I don't think zombie apocalypse, you know, whatever. But I do think that there's a world, and we saw this in Austin, we've seen this in New Orleans, where you're not going to get food for three days. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. So I, I say all that to preface with this. I've never been more optimistic about humanity in my life with the advent of AI and the proliferation of AI. All of these fears that I have, I see not now, but on a, you give it two generations, you give it 40 years, I see a solve and it makes sense. And the building blocks are here now, you know, supply chain management, resource management, infrastructure management. What would you say? Risk mitigation alerts, like AI, we didn't have any, the, the ability to bring down just the power grid in any major city is mm -hmm. so, yeah, I could do it. Me, you know what I mean? I probably shouldn't be saying this recorded. <laughs> NSA, I'm not going, but I know, you know what I mean? Like it's not right. an impossible thing to do. And, and, but when you have AI monitoring, risk mitigation, administration, not only does all the risk are you able to at least subsidize it? But then there's also the other end of things. You, you want to talk about like extreme poverty. Like we produce, well, I think it's something like 30% surplus, food surplus globally. We produce 30% more food than the globe needs. And you still have half of the world starving. What a, I'm going to use a word intentionally here. What a sin. Uh -huh. Like what is, but if you have AI supply chain and resource management, boom, done, bed. And if you feed everybody, you immediately release religious extremism. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. Poverty and religion equals, and it's any religion, by the way. I'm not picking on one because this is, again, I mean, if you know your history. So there's so many things that I think AI is going to make better and better and better. Now, there's a lot of sacred cows that we are going to murder in cold blood. And some of them are going to be real hard to let go, especially for us in the West. There's just some shit that we're going to have to there's a bullet we're going to have to bite, a lot what, of us. Um, what are you alluding to? Well, this is where, I mean, I've got Ron Paul sitting right behind me on my bookshelf, okay? I'm a, I'm a rabid libertarian. And I've had to reconcile myself to the fact and the idea that OpenAI did the largest study of universal basic income ever done. Why on earth would an organization dedicated to creating AI do an economic study on UBI doesn't make any sense, except it makes perfect sense because they know we're going to put half the world out of business. There is going to be something like the government power teat. You're going to have, you're going to have social infrastructure that supports a bare minimum standard of living. 
because, and this is the thing, everybody's like, oh, it won't replace all the jobs. It'll just create new jobs like hell. You're going to go from needing a hundred content writers to needing two. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like you look at just from a practical perspective, the largest employer outside of the US government is Uber and Lyft combined. We have autonomous vehicles right now today. In Phoenix, I can go to, I think it's Waymo, and a car picks me up, drops me off. It's more efficient from a fuel perspective. It never sleeps. It doesn't have health insurance. It's going to, you know, 50,000 people a year die from car accidents. That's going to drop to zero. And there's, what do Uber and Lyft drivers do? What new job? And all the weird armchair pundits are like, oh, well, they'll work on the Waymo car. Nope, AI will do that. And mm -hmm. as soon as robotics catches up, fuck. I mean, like, there's not, now you don't need landscapers or pool cleaners. And so I think that, from a resource perspective, I think humanity is looking at a golden age, but we're going to have to figure out how, and this, these are words that I hate. I do. I, I despise the Marxist leftist, you know, that whole thing. It's, I think it's as evil can get. It's pernicious, but there's things within it that they co-opted that we're going to have to take back and figure out how to use like people are going to get paid for what you know and when you do that to a person i think it's dismantling i think it's very dangerous to pay somebody for doing nothing and we've seen that over and over again obviously i just saw these cars in austin last week and just driving around do 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 and you have these people with their premonitions that oh they're just going to start wrecking into things and then they're really going to shut that AI stuff down and I'm like no, no it's going to be dude, the safest gonna, vehicle you've ever gonna, been in your entire it'll life it'll be better but like you said you're going to eliminate accidents you're going to do all these things so then you get into the longevity conversation as well where people not only are going to be living longer due to biohacking or whatever types of research that they're doing now that can extend that but then also you're not going to have as many people dying right, right? from your typical accidents. So then it becomes a problem. You have more people unemployed and then it goes back to education. You cannot keep teaching these people to memorize facts and figures and get up when the bell rings. You have to teach these kids how to live in the world that we have now versus the world that was 1950. So I, I agree with you. I think it's there's a huge opportunity. I wish I would have prepped more. Because now I feel like I'm like totally missing food. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that something's going to have to be done because people are resting on their laurels like, oh, well, I'll just be able to sit there and push the buttons if I'm not driving the car. No, it's not working that the way. Buttons are going to be pressed and more efficiently than you'd ever press them. And yeah, I, you know, again, I, I hate to be so chicken little about it, but it's not, it's actually not hard to fathom. It's like, oh, once this, because when you, if you play with ChatGPT, it's a miracle. And once this gets two iterations better, I can think of 100,000 tasks that don't need to be done. Mine, by the way, I sold my agency. And there's a reason I sold my agency when I sold it. I ran Google ads. Mm -hmm. Machine can run Google ads super easy. Used to be we were making 10, 20, 30 changes a day. I've got campaigns that haven't been changed in seven months. And I'll tell clients like, hey, your change history is basically empty. And they're like, that's okay. We still want you to watch it. How long does that last? Uh -huh. You know, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting world that's coming. I don't think that it's, catastrophe i don't think that it's zombie apocalypse i don't think that it's a, a steinbeck-esque dystopian future where people are you know crawling the fields of california looking to pick grapes i think that we have something in the way of enough momentum behind what ends up being really kind of a socialist movement you know what happens when the machines do all the work you know i mean it's it's almost obvious the answer is almost obvious and I hope that people can rise to that occasion because if you give people time 
I hope they don't just sit around watching Netflix. I hope they create. And we'll see, you know, I can't say that I'm optimistic, but I'm hopeful. I agree. And you make a good point there too. Obviously you've grown huge companies. You've exited them successfully. I could have asked you a ton of questions about how you did that, but I think it's already all over the internet. So people can get that information there. But what's so funny, I've been in business for 14 years. And when you get to that point and, and you've actually succeeded more than me, where you see everything that you've done, you see the industry as a whole, and you look at the way the world is going and you realize, okay, so where now am I able to, to make an, a bigger impact? And I think that's what you're moving on to, right? Is that like you had this mastermind you do and you, these partnerships that you're building. And like I said earlier, we were talking about this, that people are just so lonely and they're disconnected and they're stuck in jobs or businesses and they're trying to figure stuff out and they don't know who to turn to for the questions. Like you're obviously seeing this too, because if not, I'm a hundred percent certain you wouldn't be part of what you're part of now. So elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. I think the thing that the world is missing is community. And I think a lot of that stems from the departure of religion and the Nietzschean observation that God is dead. We used to be so reliant upon community for survival that without community, it was an impossibility that you lived. Like your genetic code could not proliferate, period. You had, you needed people. And that was, I mean, you know, look at the timeline of humanity. I don't know what, 250 years ago and the entire epoch prior to was so community driven that without a community, you would literally die almost immediately, right? It's like 24 to 48 hours and you're gone. And then society replaced community. And now, and that accelerated so quickly. Now I don't need anybody. You know, I, I work from home. I live from home. I, I can door dash my groceries. And it's, it's such a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling of disconnection. So I'm in four masterminds you know, one of which I own. And just where I think we're constantly trying to find that, the salve, the replacement, the supplement. And and I think we're doing it in our own way. I think that there's something about, you know, I mean, people love to just beat the shit out of social media and anything online. But I think that there's a reasonable supplement for that need. I find tons of strength in social communities online. I do think that there's a balance there and I've overdone it. You know, I have something of an addiction on my phone. Um, but I think we need to find our way back to community. And I actually think we're doing that now. That feels the way that people are going. The problem is, is it's also, it runs tandem to herd mentality. So people's way of finding their way back to community is like, oh, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, well, great. Let's fucking civil war this shit then because you're both going to kill each other. And... I think that we need to find community without, not based on exclusion, you know, like find the community based on what you love, not on what you hate. And then, yep. you know, hopefully that lends us and headed in the right direction. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Just like you, I've been a part of same thing. I work from home. I live here. You get food in all the things that you said, and I've joined them in the past too. And unfortunately, a lot of times while you meet a, a few select people, you have to be real careful about 
the following and that you're doing things not because you're basing that off of an identity that you think you have Mm. versus these are the people that I have something in common with. And that's part of what I like and what I enjoy and I will identify with them. So what would you say to people who who are remote workers. They're working from home. They, they have a nine to five job, or maybe they're just getting their business started or whatever, but they're feeling like that loneliness as somebody that's, you know, gone up the ranks, built these huge companies, successfully exited and felt that feeling of, I have all this and I've been successful and now I need more. And they can't afford masterminds or big groups or lots of travel. What Two or three things would you tell them to get out of that feeling? Yeah, I think community is, is readily accessible. It requires a little bit in the way of being proactive. You know, it's I'm going to use the word church. I grew up Baptist. And so f- for the Baptist, the church is the watering hole. Like that is where everything. So find church. Now, church doesn't have to be church. And there's a bunch of reasons none of us want to go to church. I'm a, I'm a, well, my mom says I'm lost in the wilderness. I've made a very successful significant and strong departure from Christianity in a literal sense. But I still really like the idea of church. And I tell you, the closest thing I found to church is CrossFit. Like a bunch of people getting together, shared vision, mentality, goals. You know, CrossFit is a lot like church. Intramural sports are a lot like church. Your knitting club might be something like church. Masterminds are like church. Like where can you go to be around other people that are like you that are going to that are going to pull you up, not pull you down. And they're everywhere. There might just be a really good book club. You know, start with what you love. You like to bike, go find the other cyclists. You like to play pickleball, go find the other pickleball players. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I think that go find your church. And then from there, um, it kind of takes on a, a mind and life of its own. Best thing I've ever done for myself is Front Row Dads, which is a mastermind, but it's not, it's $100 a month. Like it's no money as far as masterminds are concerned. And I'm surrounded by 400 other fathers that want to be better fathers and better husbands. And, you know, I've got a small band of dads that I meet with monthly for accountability. And I've got a telegram thread that I can hop in anytime I've got a question or an issue. And they bring in thought leaders and we can get together in person and they do events. So I can go virtual. I can go in person. And they're everywhere. Like there's no shortage of uh, communities. Just go plug into one and try some out. You know, try two, three, four, five and just see what works for you. Um, but find one for sure. And, uh, the nice thing about being remote is you can work from anywhere. Maybe go somewhere where it's a little easier. If you really, truly feel isolated, you know, I mean, shit, move to Spain. You ever seen those people do community? You're God in heaven. It's like, that's all there is. You know, work is secondary, man. I'm with my people now there. It's a, (laughs) it's an interesting culture. God bless them. So Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I think that's great advice. And I know you're busy and I wish I could go on for like hours and hours because so much to talk about. Man, I appreciate you being here. It's been real enlightening and it's a breath of fresh air to actually have someone to share the dialogue with. And y'all take some of this advice to he because so much of the wisdom that he just poured out can lead you to not only growth, professionally, but personally. So if your relationship sucks, if your friend groups suck, if you feel like a horrible parent, think about what he's saying, those three core values, the truth, the responsibility, the love. That's as easy as saying, hey, you know what? It feels really uncomfortable for me to say this, but 
maybe you should switch to the red dress. And I agree, don't say that they're just bad. And take responsibility for the things you screw up, say you screwed it up. I remember one of my favorite lines, and since you're an actor, I'm going to tell you this, in Dirty Dancing is at the end of it when her dad is like, when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong. And that has stuck with me for life. I guess it's just because I love the movie. Anyway, whatever. But like I said, the strategies highlighted today aren't just business strategies. They're life lessons, blueprints for resilience, all that good stuff. And Kasim, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, learn more about the mastermind, how can people do that? I'm on all socials at Kasim Aslam. If you don't find me, don't listen to anything I'm saying because I'm supposed to be a marketer. The mastermind is drivenmastermind.com. It's 30 grand for the year. We meet weekly, virtually, and in person once a quarter. And we're capped at 100 people and we're just about to sell out. So we might, by the time this airs, be uh, on a waiting list. But that's good for marketing. That's good scarcity there. So act now. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks, Kasim, for being here. If today's episode resonated with you, share it with your friends. You don't know who's out there in the world trying to figure all this shit out. And it's not easy. Head over to our website for additional resources, any kind of downloads, and remember to subscribe to hear from more amazing humans like Kasim. And until next time, guys, dig deep, rise high. That's a wrap on this episode of Skeletons from the Closet with me, your go-to gal for turning chaos into growth, Amy Ball. If you love the ride, then sprint on over to our Skeletons website for more even badass resources. Oh, and if you dig what I'm putting down, don't be a stranger. Subscribe, drop a review, and maybe even leave a saucy comment. Until next time, keep building that trust and turning your struggles into damn superpowers.